Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Daniel Stevenson from LSU is with us on the phone. And, of course, Tom's here, too. I did that backwards, Tom. My bad. That's fine. I'm an afterthought most of the year. <clears throat> Daniel, what's up, my friend? Not much, man. I like to say. Doing well. It's actually cool this morning, and it's going to be cool for a couple of – or I say cool. Cool-ish, I guess, maybe, for a couple of days, and then it's supposed to be back over 100 this weekend. We are finally today supposedly going to break 18 – 18 days straight of over 100 degrees. Ouch. Today is supposed to be 99. We haven't done that, but we've had several days over 100 and then the others in the high 90s, no question. I think it was Sunday afternoon. My wife and I were talking. It was five, six, something like that. And she said, uh, you want to go outside and sit on the porch? And I looked up our little local handy-dandy weather station, and I did the minute report. And I looked down and I said, at 4.59, it was 102.7 outside. <laughs> and she said, no, we'll stay inside. And I said, good. <laughs> this bears repeating, and the only reason I do it here is I haven't done it on Twitter, but your colleague Trey Price forwarded me a tweet over the weekend where somebody from the upper Midwest was complaining about having to spend three days outside doing field work and said that they were ready to be back inside in the fall riding because it was over 80 degrees and they, they just couldn't handle that. And I thought about that when I walked out of corn plots and it was 102 degrees. And when you get down into some corn with no air movement, man, that's a, oh, that's a good time. I was <laughs> gasping for air. I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> I'm, like, I, I'm halfway done. Halfway done. <laughs> so coincidentally, that leads me to my question that I have for Daniel. So I went back and forth on this one, buddy, and I finally settled in. I said, all right, I'm going to pick something that Daniel doesn't work in for maximum effect. So you've never had specific responsibilities for rice or for sugar cane. So my example is going to include rice and cane. Would you rather walk across a flooded rice field in August or through a maturing sugar cane field in August? Um, can I have weapons? <laughs> you can have you can have whatever you think is Tennis necessary. Tennis racket might be a good idea. I've walked across a rice field, and I'm not very good at walking in flooded water. I've, I've never really gained that experience in in Arkansas when I was up there. And you're from South Alabama, so you don't have the swamp foot. <laughs> That's right. Don't have the swamp foot, and I don't have webbed toes. So uh, I would say I'd say cane, but that worries me because of, you've told me stories of oh, it's miserable, it's miserable, all, all that kind of stuff in cane. I don't envy either of my um, Connor Webster and Rice or Matt Foster and Alois Ron in cane. But I will tell you, we have a, a pond on part of this research station that a former research associate of mine found where an alligator had been walking into our soybean. Interesting. And you can see where his belly was rubbing, and she uh, she, she called me. She goes, hey, I, I need to walk in the field, collect some data, but I can see where alligators been coming in and out. I said, then don't worry about collecting that data. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly those, those data on those dates become points. We didn't collect those dates. 
Yeah. Yeah, no. Why not? Alligator. It's a matter of priorities, right? Tell him I won't say I stumped him, but I definitely made him pause and think. You did. All right, dude, it's been a while since you've been on with us, so your job has changed considerably in the meantime, so why don't you tell folks what you're doing now for LSU? I am still the Extension Wheat Scientist responsible for corn, cotton, grain, sorghum, soybean, and wheat, and I'm still the research coordinator at the Dean Lee Research Station, but my new gig is that I am the director of the central region. Uh, LSU Ag Center divides Louisiana into five regions, northwest, northeast, central, southwest, and southeast. And I am the director because my former regional director, Dr. Tara Smith, is now the director of the Cooperative Extension Service. Her office now is in Baton Rouge. So I worked under her as her assistant for a while, um, learned a lot, and now I'm drinking from a fire hose on steroids. I can only imagine. Well, actually, I don't even want to imagine. So you're like three people, at least, maybe four, considering that weed specialist job could be a couple of people. Yeah, there will be a time in um, the future that I'm going to probably have to find a replacement. We called Daniel today, or actually Daniel called us, and we wanted to talk about trying, and notice I said trying, Tom, to control Johnson grass. And Daniel, I think the last two years for me, from, I don't know, late May to the 4th of July or later, the biggest call volume that I get is about grass. A lot of it is Johnson grass. A lot of it is goose grass. And we have resistance to glyphosate in both of those, but I also think that a lot of the calls I get, they're not, it's not necessarily a case of resistance. Last year, I would have told you that it was a lot of problems with weather. We sprayed a lot of stuff when it was really hot, and those two grasses are marginal to start with. They're two of the more difficult to control grasses for us. Therefore, when we make an application when it's really too hot, for a herbicide to work optimally, then we miss them. I can't say that this year because it wasn't nearly as hot, and it was still hot in the big spray time, but it wasn't nearly as hot in 2023 as it was in 2022. So now i got to come up with new material, and therefore we called you. And you've been up here, I don't know how many times, in the last 10 years to do meetings for us and talk about Johnson grass. But don't feel like you're being a broken record, it bears repeating for sure. So let's dive off and give folks a status of what Johnson Grass is doing in Louisiana. Dr. Jim Griffin and I documented glyphosate-resistant Johnson Grass in 2010. 2009 was the first time that I walked the field where we saw this problem, and, and Dr. Griffin found this um, more down toward Baton Rouge. Really, that was these guys rolling out of cane trying to control Johnson grass and phyla, and they were not they were not able to. I believe that's correct. But anyway, so we both with our separate populations documented it and began to evaluate different programs. Jason Northworth and I had a project through Cotton Incorporated where we looked at ALS inhibitors in cotton, and mixed with and without germinicides, and really found ALS inhibitors are not in cotton are not a good choice. So I had a student whose thesis was 
evaluating blue fox nature liberty and uh he determined that that is a fairly good option it takes two to potentially three applications of blue fox a year to slow it down the bigger the johnson grass the better it's kind of crazy i think it's just more of a surface area collecting um the blue fox when it's applied but it just burns it it doesn't necessarily kill the plant so what the farmers in the central part of the state and down in the southern part of the state around that I-10 toward Baton Rouge corridor, which is not really south Louisiana, they would tell you, really began to rely on the graminicide, specifically clethidine, generic select. And we've been riding that horse for a while because I did a lot of evaluations, a lot of what you did with Italian ryegrass, Jason, trying just to see what I could do with it. And in cotton and soybean, essentially found that it was either Liberty or Graminicide. Um, at the time, Clefton was predominantly one used, not so much of, say, Sure 2, because Alifop, that has begun here lately to begin to be used a little bit more. And for 10 years, let's say 10, 12 years, we were riding the Graminicide train. And if the first dose to put out didn't kill the Johnson grass, we'd have a second application of a of a higher dose. Nine times out of ten, that would that would do the trick in cotton and soybean. So then, if they were in corn, you still have the old accent nicosulfuron that that works fairly well. But we had figured out some years ago that the product uh, Caprino and Corvus actually had really good activity on Johnson grass in corn. So that kind of became the suggestion when he rolled into corn, and that's still there. That, that still has good activity. And where people can rotate the corn or willing to, that's more times than not my suggestion that they use Caprino or Corvus if they so choose to go pre or very, very early post. The scary thing, and I knew this was going to happen just because this is just what happens is the graminicides would eventually begin to fail. And here recently in the central part of the state, where I'm domiciled, they have begun to fail. Really, the first uh, major complaints were in 21. My grower applied, collected them twice, and it, you know, suppressed its growth, but it was still green, still still want to grow. So he applied an application of a sure two and really did nothing to it. So then I'm like, oh my goodness, we got dim and we got a fop. So do we have some cross resistance here? So that began the big concern that what are we going to do? Because if I'm only looking at Liberty and cotton and soybean, and I have a product, you know, the Nicosulfuron accent or accent um, Caprino Corvus in corn, what are we going to do? Because we're running out of choices. Add to that, over the last four years, it has began, what I mean it is Johnson grass that is not controlled by glyphosate. Those populations have begun to move up into the Delta part of the state, up to the Macon Ridge area. So in 2020, Catahoula and Concordia Parish began to complain. Then in 2021, Franklin and a little bit of Tinsaw began to complain. And now this is not widespread. This is just in patches. 
this past year, I've talked to people all the way up in, in Morehouse who have complained about having Johnson grass that would not be controlled with glyphosate, but clepidum is still working for them. So if we apply the same timeline to them, within a decade, if that's all they use is clepidum, then we have a perfect example of what could happen here. So Palmer Amaranth's scary. The research has shown we got a lot of tools. I am more scared of Johnson grass than I am of anything else I've ever faced. And that includes barnyard grass. That includes, well, goose grass is pretty doggone scary, but we're talking about Johnson grass today. But we just don't have the tools to control it. Trifluralin, which is the old choice that you'd put out for inhibition of its growth, just doesn't fit our tillage systems here in Louisiana because we hip up on rows and you just don't get good incorporation. I've already mentioned the ALSs aren't working, the, the cominicides don't work, and glyphosate doesn't work. Then we're down to Liberty, and uh, most of this Johnson grass is rhizome. It does produce seed. We can spread via seed. So any kind of tillage work we do, which we have significant amount of tillage in this state still, it just spreads it. Hogs love it. I've seen them root up rows to eat rhizomes. Johnson grass. So feral hogs can move it around. I don't know if it's broken down in a room. I don't know. I'm not a uh, animal person, but still, it's a it's a concerning situation that um, if guys see it in a little clump. That's when it starts. That one little clump that stays green after you spray something. Go dig it up. Those story we talked about. You know, go pull the palmer if you see it. Because if it spreads, man, I don't have a lot of answers for you. You mentioned you screening herbicides against Johnson grass and then those different ACCases. And you said that we basically used clethodem because clethodem is what we had. In your work, did you see a difference between those different ACCAs herbicides? So the clethodem to the Assure slash Quasalifot products to Fusilade? No, no. Earlier, the Dems and the Fouls both were controlling it. When we first started. Because when we were kids, pre-Roundup Ready, your rule of thumb, and I tell a lot of people this when I have conversations with them on the phone about Johnson grass, but pre-Roundup Ready, we tended to use the FOPs, so the Fusillade and Assure 2 at that time in history, on perennial grasses, which were Johnson grass and Bermuda grass predominantly. And then we used the other ones like clethodem and post four annual grasses and i don't necessarily see that now and of course that was many many years ago at this point i've always said something similar to what you said we're just using clethodem because clethodem is what we've got it's the one that's most readily available you know all of our retailers some of them have multiple versions of products Mm -hmm. containing clethodem i would say that's probably the one of the main reasons is that Clethodem was a primary choice, and that's what retailers were pushing. My next question, you mentioned it moving into the Delta Parishes. In central Louisiana, if it was 10 years before we went from glyphosate resistance to multiple resistance to with glyphosate and the ACCase, in this case, clethodem, the difference, Daniel, in that central Louisiana area in that 10-year period, if you just call it 10 for an even number, there was a number of those years that did not include extend. 
and now moving into those Delta parishes, that dynamic would include applications in extend crops or even in list crops. So would you anticipate that moment of having the multiple resistance being sooner than 10 years? And I know there's no crystal ball, but just guessing and based on what you see when we make these applications with tank mixes. From what I've seen, Jason and Tom, that Steckel kind of brought out the, the mixing of eclipidum with the dicamba to try to avoid some of this antagonism. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. And I looked at that, and I really didn't it, – it, it didn't matter to me either way. Clefidum either worked or it didn't. I didn't see the dicamba really affecting. But in all my work on the annual grasses, when I put out the application timely, I, I got control even of barnyard grass with, with glyphosate, even when it was mixed with dicamba. So the only time that I can mimic what the growers were seeing is when I let the barnyard grass get any kind of size on it, meaning four inches or bigger. And then you added the weather on top of it. So is your question surrounding, could there be antagonism? Could that be causing? Well, I guess the question is, would the potential for antagonism or the antagonism that we either see in a commercial application or see on those annual grasses, could that speed up the timeline to selection for that resistant population? basically sublethal doses exactly. of a treatment. Any application does, that does not terminate the weed to death I and mean, allows that plant to go reproductive, either be a seed or the rhizomes don't completely die, can exacerbate and speed up the timeline. So if there is antagonism, uh, the dicam antagonizes the glyphosate on controlling of Johnson grass, yeah, absolutely it could happen. So how widespread do you think this issue is? Do you think it's larger in area than what you've observed and you've received your telephone calls related to? Um, yeah, I would say it's bigger. It's not as widespread as Palmer Amaranth, for example. So, But the where it is, it's quite significant. That's, that's the best way I can describe it, Tom. I can't tell you acres. The disturbing part is that it's moving into areas that we don't have sugarcane. And because sugarcane is becoming very, very, taking a lot of acres in the central part of the state, really from, you know, just south of Alexandria, south. And they have tools that they use to, to kind of help them fight Johnson's grass, even though Johnson's grass is a major problem or can be a major problem in, um, in sugarcane. So that's a new set of tools. You know, Agilam, for example, um, Invoke has got some activity, I believe. And that's what's funny. Invoke's got activity in cane, but it didn't work in cotton. That's a head scratcher. I'm sure that rate would be different, huh? I don't have any idea. I don't know the rate. If anybody asks me about sugar cane, I'm like, uh, you need to call Alvaro. <laughs> and now it's Matt Foster because Matt's replacing Al. Because Al's gone administrative too. That's my concern. So... This fall and this winter, what I'm going to suggest to a lot of people who have Johnson grass problems is to strongly, strongly consider rotating that field of corn because I know we have an effective tool right now to control Johnson grass. I've got an area on the farm at one time I could have cut it for Johnson grass hay and I was able to plant corn and control Johnson grass in that environment. 
So if it worked for me there, I feel pretty confident that it would work. And that's not an endorsement of one chemical. I never like to do that, but I'm going to tell you what works. And those two products, Caprino and Corvus, were, the, were good. And Accent, Accent, Old Nico, there's a lot of generics out there. I've gotten good reports, and I've got some so-so reports. But I've yet to receive a report that Caprino failed in corn for Johnson Grass Control. What's your suggestion for a soybean farmer that might have a problem with it? pre-harvest right now, knowing that we're going to get into a situation whereby we're going to desiccate a bunch, and you might as well assume that the combine rolling through Johnson grass is just going to spread seed. Is his best alternative putting in a corn crop next year as well? Yeah, and I don't, I can't remember the dormancy of, of the Johnson grass seed. I would be more concerned if his rise on, on a tillage standpoint, so when this farmer rehips his or her field, that they they need to practice sanitation and clean off their hippers and not move this, this rhizome around. Because if they do that, once it gets a foothold, it's, it's pretty difficult to get rid of, particularly if it's resistant to glyphosate. So that's the first thing I would tell them, because there's nothing you can spray right now that's going to make it vanish. Gamoxone will burn it, turn it brown. Jason, is there something in the past where somebody looked at Reducing the viability of Johnson grass seed with Paraquat. I know, like Eric Walker looked at some stuff back when we were in school with glyphosate, ciclopods, mother weeds. I don't remember anything not, on Johnson grass seed. You? Not that I'm aware of. And the, the thing I was going to say to Tom's question, I don't know how many times I've ever looked at Johnson grass and knew for a fact, hey, that's seedling Johnson grass. I mean, most of the time. Oh, yeah. It's just almost exclusively rhizome. So Daniel mentioned the dormancy of the seed. I don't, I don't have any idea about that either, but I also don't know how good those seed are. It may just make seed, some of them are good, but it may have a real low viability or a real long dormancy. Well, and then you don't, you don't know what the impact's going to be if you harvest, then come in and till, and you're burying that to a level. I mean, your assumption there is, is you're not going to have 100% germination of the seed that's produced by that plant anyways. What's the tillage going to do to that? And I don't remember enough about the biology of scarification and all the rest of that, if that benefits that particular plant or not. It does in some other situations. We don't use Paraquat targeting Johnson grass, and Daniel explained that. Still, I would worry about exposing Johnson grass to a lot of our, our harvest aid applications because that rate's lower to start with. And again, if we do end up with a population that's resistant to paraquat, we weren't relying on it to start with, but there's no sense in creating an additional case of resistance either. But there's no way to duck and dodge around that. That weed's there, here's an agronomic practice that we're committed to, therefore it's going to get exposure. And a lot of other stuff is too. The palmer is for sure. I'd be much more worried about Palmer sticking out the top of a soybean canopy that's getting a lower rate of paraquat than I would the Johnson grass, but still it's the same concept. The good news is that only occurs in the soybean field uh, where the paraquat uses the desiccant. It's not done in cotton. It's not done in, in corn. It's not done in grain soil. And then I'm sure you you guys are aware there are some technologies coming down the pipe in grain soil. Corteva's got one called enzyme soil. That is Nicosulfuron. Then there's another one that's Quasalifop. There's another one that is, I believe, a Mazamox. 
and I don't remember the names of those two off the top of my head. Double Team is one of them, and and I Grow, I Growth. So they're not GMOs; they're nationally bred. And right now, they're focusing on the Shirek cane out in the Kansas area. Um, but I've worked with these companies a little bit in the past. But pay attention to the herbicides I said that they're tolerant to. Nicosulfuron, which we're using in corn. Other ALSs have failed. Quizalifop, which we know is not working. And then the Mazmox, which is another ALS. So it's not like this tolerant, herbicide-tolerant grain sorghum is going to be just a windfall for us. But there are, for just for full disclosure, there are some more tools coming. But don't grow a lot of grain sorghum in Louisiana anyway. So we got corn coming off, Daniel, and I know y'all are cutting everything. And beans will start here pretty soon, and we already got a, a few beans out. But so our fall field work is going to start going on. Mm-hmm. A strategy for another big perennial weed that we have, which is red vine, is to time a herbicide application, in, in the case of red vine specifically, dicamba, in front of a frost to suppress that population for the following year. So it's got that big root structure underground, and the idea is that plant starts to go dormant. You kill it with a herbicide, and then it regrows, and the reserves below ground are less, and then if you get a cold winter, it may suppress that population from being as dense or as vigorous the following spring. So myth or fact, that'll work for Johnson grass as well. I've tried it with some herbicides, just various ones. So Fosnate, Caprino, some ALS inhibitors, the ACCA inhibitors, tocomenicides, trying to find something. And I went off the premise of that three weeks before first frost kind of thought process, which if I remember correctly, is kind of where that red vine thing fits in. Yeah. And I was able to see efficacy on that standing plant. But when I came back to those plots the following spring, I saw very little, if any, reduction in Johnson grass emergence. So I'm not saying it's the herbicide's fault. I'm thinking it may be more me timing that. As far as, you know, is it three weeks? Would it be one week? Would it be a month prior to? That I, I don't know because you know, the thought process is that it's translocating carbohydrates down to the rootstock to overwinter. That's something, honestly, that needs to be evaluated more. Even more so for you than us, that first frost date's a moving target. <laughs> and I, yeah, think the, I think the yeah. timing would be super important there. And I would also suspect if we went and did a bunch of similar work with Red Vine, if we timed it poorly or we timed it when we thought it was going to frost and it ended up not, I would suspect you would get some erratic results with that too, even though that's yeah. a commonly accepted practice. And I've told people to do it with Johnson grass prior to asking you about it and you related your experience with it. So then I have told other people that Daniel says did not work for him. So be cautious with it. You know, the other thing, historical practice, and you mentioned the trifluralin would be a fall application of trifluralin with our hippers. And I have talked to a couple folks that have tried that 
but I've never gotten any feedback from them the following spring, whether they were satisfied with it or not. If you think about the action of the soul movement with a set of hippers, because you have to incorporate it, the proper way to incorporate it is shallow tillage up to a couple of inches east and west and then turn 45 degrees and do it either at a 45-degree angle. So two-pass incorporation, get incorporated properly, you're not going to do that with a set of hippers. That's right. Are you congregating are you congregating that treated soil on top of that row and there's nothing on the shoulders in the middle? Or are you diluting it so much? And that I don't know. Um, are you diluting it so much on the top row that you're not getting activity? I agree that research from the past has shown that trifluralin does have efficacy on Johnson grass. But our tillage practices just don't make it where I think it's worth spending money on. Well, trifluralin is also, it's good. It's not excellent if you put it on weed control guide scales. If dual and zidual are nines, then trefland's probably an eight on ryegrass. But we can't. We mm-hmm. just can't put it out right. I was going to say, how many people are going to yeah. do that and go to the time of that? That's usually they want to do that in a less pass-type program structure than what you all are talking about. Even on flat ground, which in the delta is definitely the exception rather than the rule, the discs that we use now are not incorporating discs. They're breaking discs. And they're just not set exactly. up for a herbicide incorporation. Yeah, you need something. With t- best thing to do is kind of like when I, where I grew up, where we would use uh, sauna land incorporated prior to peanuts, was um, something with some tines on it with small shovels and then a rolling basket on the back. It yep. just lightly incorporates it a couple of inches. If you see that kind of equipment here, it's dragging a row off. That's right. Daniel, thanks so much. I think that's great information, obviously, on yet another growing weed issue. I don't know what it ranks in the hierarchy of troublesome weeds, Tom, but all our life, it's been right up there close to the top on the troublesome scale. It just took a back seat for a while to some other things when we were really blowing and going with Roundup Ready and and Roundup was doing everything that we asked it to do, and now we're circling back around. All right, buddy. We appreciate it. Yeah, man. That was great conversation. Always enjoy it. Have a good rest of the day. I will. I will. Y'all be good, man. See you, Daniel. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 